So there was a king who was hunting in a forest when he stumbled upon a tree. On this tree had several targets drawn on its trunk, and right in the center of each circle was an arrow. Who is this fine archer, the king asked his men. I must find him and recruit him, recruit him for my army. Just at that moment, a boy carried a bow and a quiver of arrows walked by. He overheard the king, and he admitted that he was the one who had shot the arrows. Are you sure you didn't just push the arrows into the middle, asked the king. No, sire, said the boy. I shot them from a hundred paces. That's amazing, cried the king. From now on, consider yourself to be in the service of your king. The boy was overjoyed. Now, tell me, continued the king, how did you become, or how did you come to be such an excellent archer? Well, said the boy, first I shoot the arrow at the tree, and then I paint a ring around it. (laughs) You know, it's important to have goals, right? Goals are important in life. I've often heard that if you do not set a goal, you will never achieve it. And this is true. Many of you know my youngest daughter, Lily. She does gymnastics, and this is her second year being competitive in gymnastics. And, of course, you know, the goal is to go into a meet and to get as many medals as you can and do your best. And, but we wanted to make sure that she was focused on the right things. The medals are great, right? The recognition is great. But we wanted to make sure that she understood their bigger goals in mind. Goal number one, honor God by doing your best, no matter what. And the second one, have fun. We, we, everything after that, honoring God by doing your best and having fun, everything after that is, is really just a great, I mean, it's great stuff. See, we want her to be the best gymnast she can be, of course, but it's more important that she be the best child of God that she can be. It's more important that she realizes that le- life is less about how great she's going to be and how great her God is going to be. We want to make sure that her goal in life does not always revolve around herself. And it should be the same, right? Our goals should not always revolve around how amazing our lives can be, but how amazing our God can be in our life. Setting goals is healthy. It is productive. And today I want to challenge each one of us, myself included, to set a goal, not only to set a goal, but to see them through. We are in the book of Ezra. We have been in the book of Ezra for a little while now. You can see the, uh, the, the logo up here on the screen. Our God is greater. That's been the theme of this entire book. And if you haven't been with us, I want to just catch you up. And I know it's been a while since I've been up here. So I want to catch you up on where we've been. Ezra chapter 1 starts off, and the people, God's people, the people of Israel, are in captivity. They've been in captivity for about 70 years. God said, I'm going to bring you out of captivity. I'm going to, I'm going to be uh, uh, faithful to my promises, and we find out that he is. He keeps his promises. And what we find out in chapter 1 is that God can use anyone and anything to do that. Chapter 2, we find a, a list of names, the people that went back uh, in the exodus from Babylon. They were on a mission, and we saw the details in that chapter. Chapter 3, we saw the passion and the perseverance of the people. They, they wanted to serve God, and, and, and they had this task. They had to build, rebuild the temple. Chapter 4 through 6, we went through a lot of, a lot of material on that Sunday. But what we found out is that there was a common theme throughout these chapters, and that was there was opposition. Opposition is always going to creep up on you, but what we found is this. Opposition always leads to opportunity for God to work in your life. Then we moved on to chapter 7. In the first part of chapter 7, we found this. In order to bring about change in our world, our community, our church, and our families, we must be committed to studying the Word, practicing the Word, and teaching the Word. And when we ended in chapter 7, 
the last part of it, here's what we found out, that our sovereign love of God should always lead us, always lead you and me to a place of worship where we simply recognize who he is and we respond in action. So we've come to chapter 8 today. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. We'll have it up on the screen. I'm going to be preaching from the New American Standard Version. Um, And so we're in chapter 8. And what chapter 8 does, chapter 8 kind of circles around back to chapter 7. See, chapter 7, we find out that there is a decree put out that Ezra can go back to Jerusalem. And what we find is that they, they actually make it back. But it doesn't give us a lot of details. Chapter 8 is going to come back around. It's going to give us a list of people that go on the trip. And it's going to fill us up, fill us up on some of the challenges that they faced. Here's what we find out is that through chapters 1 through 6, it happens over the course of 100 years. Then we come to chapters 7 through 10, which actually happens in a matter of one year. Kind of interesting how the book goes. And so when we come to chapter 8, we come to another list. We've seen lists all throughout this book, and we're not going to read down the list because it's a list of a bunch of names, and while it would be entertaining for you, it would be horrible for me because I'd fumble through it, okay? So we're not going to read the entire list, but what we're going to find out is if you look through that list, some of those names are going to look familiar. They're actually related to the people that came back on the first trip with Zerubbabel. And this list, of course, it's not just a list. It's something that is important. It wouldn't be there if it's not, right? And so we find out that this list is important to find out what Ezra is going to say next. It's going to set that up. We find that in verse 15 of chapter 8. It says, Now I assembled them at the river that runs through Ahava, where we camped for three days. And when I observed the people and the priests, I did not find any Levites there. So Ezra has got all his people. He's gathering them together. He's taking stock of who he's got. And all of a sudden, the Levites are missing. The Levites are nowhere to be found. And I wonder, I mean, it's, it's there, so it's got to be important. These Levites have got to be important to the task that Ezra has. So who are the Levites? You probably could guess they're descendants of a guy named Levi. It's hard to figure out, right? Who was actually a son of Jacob and Leah all the way back into Genesis. And we also see them in the book of Exodus when Moses comes down off the mountain and he sees the people worshiping the golden calf. He, you know, he, he gets angry, rightfully so. And what he does after that, he finds out that the, the, uh, the Levites are the ones who are going to be loyal and faithful and true. And so he sets them apart. They would become the caretakers of the tabernacle as they wandered through the desert and they would aid the priests. The Levites in the, Exodus, uh, the first Exodus back were put in charge of overseeing the entire temple, building the temple. And we see that they were purified and they helped with the sacrifices. But not only did they assist with the priests, but they were also, as we see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they were teachers of the law. So therefore, they had an extremely important role in the reestablished community that was going to be happening. The people desperately needed to understand the word and the importance of the law as they faced a brand new life outside of exile. So he gathers the people and he finds no Levites. Where in the world are the Levites? Well, perhaps, I mean, we could come up with a couple excuses, right? Perhaps the Levites, they were just not invited. Well, if we look back into chapter 7, verse 13, we find that Artaxerxes, who gives this command, gives the invite, he clearly invites him. He says, I issue a decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including the priests and the Levites, who want to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. So that doesn't, that doesn't hold water. They were certainly invited. You could say, well, maybe all the Levites went back on the first trip. Well, if you go back and you look, actually only 74 of them went, and I'm pretty sure there were more than 74 in that entire camp. 
They were not there, not because they weren't invited or because they were already there. They were not there because they didn't want to be there. They were not there because they didn't recognize who they were. They didn't recognize their importance in the grand scheme of things that Ezra had for them and more importantly that God had for them. They failed to recognize their importance. And even worse, if they didn't fail to recognize it, maybe they recognized it and they just didn't want any part of what God had for them. You know, that actually happens to us as as believers, right? There are times in our lives where we fail to recognize who we are and whose we are. It could be as simple as thinking, you know, God wants me to do this, but ah, there's just no way I could do it. It's, it's, it's way too out of my comfort zone. It could be that you're just maybe being a little bit stubborn. You, you realize you are a Christian. You realize and admit that you're being uh, led to be part of a certain ministry, perhaps, or to be a part of somebody's life. And you're like, man, that just all sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very busy. You realize I, I barely have time for myself. Look, when we do that, we are essentially saying to God, thanks, but no thanks. I'm good. That's where the, the, the Levites were at. They, they failed to recognize where they, where, who they were and how important they were. And they knew it, and they ignored it. What they needed is someone to call them out. Someone to kind of get behind them, give them a little boot, right? Someone to give them some encouragement. I don't know about you, but there are times when I need a swift kick, right? Where I need someone to, to realize help me realize my potential in Christ. You know, the church, not just why Bible church, but the church in general needs to wake up because the fields are ripe all around us. We need to realize that as believers and Christians, we're called to be the child of God. And what that means is that we're to get off the sidelines and into the game to recognize who we are in Christ and live it out. The Levites were doing the complete opposite. They were sitting there doing nothing. Now we'll stay back. It'll be more comfortable in in exile, even though it's technically exile. I don't really have to do a whole lot, so it's going to work out. Ezra goes, "Uh uh-uh. Not happening. Not on my watch. The king put me in charge, and more importantly, the reputation of Almighty God was on the line. And so Ezra, he jumps into action. Verse 16. So so I sent for Eleazar and Ariel and then a bunch of other names that I'm not going to fumble through. He, He takes action. He he sees a problem, and rather than sit there and wait and complain and go, oh, this is happening, and this is not right, and what am I going to do? That word so there is a word of action. And so he said, okay, you don't want to come. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to send my leading guys. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to find the people that actually want to go back and serve God and to be faithful. And so verse 18, according to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of insight and his sons. And look at these people that he brought. Looks like hundreds of people, right? Well, if, if you actually look at the numbers, that's hundreds of people, but not all kinds of Levites. Only 38 of them were actually Levites. The rest were all temple servants. Ezra finds out that there's not that many that are willing to go. But he decides, look, okay, I've, I've, I've put out the call. The invite has been there. Nobody came, and I actually went, and I started knocking on doors. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring them out, and they say, okay, I'll go. This is who we have, even though it's a small group. Look, Ezra and his people, they're at a pivotal point right now. They have everyone they need. They're about to set out on a journey, and it's a journey of almost a 1,000 miles that will take months to complete. That in and of itself would just be a nightmare. I mean, that would be difficult. You have to realize they had women and children and livestock. I mean, the logistics of that would absolutely drive you crazy. However, there's a bigger issue. 
I mean, as if it wouldn't be dangerous enough, if you're just taking the normal stuff that you have, they are going to be taking other things with them. And there, there, there are perils along the journey, and we know this, right? The journey of life, there are perils, there are dangers, there are obvious things that are happening. But here's why it's a bigger deal for them. If you look back into chapter 7, verse 15, Artaxerxes wants them to bring some stuff with them. He says, and bring the silver and the gold, which the king and the counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel. Verse 16, with all the silver and the gold that you find in the whole province of Babylon. He's going to be taking a lot of money with him. Later on and back in the chapter that we're in, chapter 8, you find that Ezra says, okay, we're going to count out this, this gold. We're going to count it out to see exactly how much we have. And in verse 26 of chapter 8, he says, Thus I weighed it into their hands, 650 talents of silver. And silver utensils were the 100 talents. And 100 gold talents, 20 gold bowls were the uh, 1,000 derricks. Commentators believe that this would have added up to millions of dollars in today's figures. No wonder Ezra was a little bit stressed out. No wonder he was a little bit concerned about the people's safety. I mean, they're going to be traveling a thousand miles over months with no protection. What, what is Ezra going to do? He's concerned about it. Well, Ezra turns to the only one who can help. Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all of our possessions. Ezra, again, a man of action, takes action and proclaims a fast. Well, what is a fast, you may say? Well, a fast is simply abstaining from food. And a lot of you right now are like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> we don't need to do that. It's almost lunchtime. I need to eat. You know, it's, It really is. It's simple. The, the, the definition of it is abstaining from food. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. We, we see it in the, New, in the New Testament about 30 different times. And this, this, this sermon's not going to turn into a, a sermon on fasting and how you should or you shouldn't or whatever it may be. But it, it is here in the text, and so we've got to wrestle with it just a little bit. Fasting is normally something that is done in times of distress, great need, or mourning. It's not commanded in the Scriptures, but Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospels, when you fast, do it this way. So that leads you to believe that it is something that is normal and acceptable as a follower of God. Numerous times, fasting and prayer is together. Prayer and fasting, they kind of go hand in hand. And, but it's a time for you, if you're the one doing it, and God, not something to be flaunted around. Fasting doesn't mean that you are any more spiritual than the person next to you. If you don't fast, you're not any less spiritual than the person next to you. It is something that you feel led to at these extreme times. But I like how the Hebrew describes it. They, it defines it as abstaining from food, and it's the Hebrew word soon. But the primary idea, listen to this, the primary idea lies in the mouth being shut. It's not just abstaining from food. It's your mouth being shut. Some of us have a hard time with that, right? I mean, we, we always have something to say. We're, we're quick to speak and slow to, to listen. But fasting involves your mouth being shut so you can come before God and to hear from Almighty God. Ezra recognized this was something that he needed to do. And so he is a natural-born leader. He takes action. He's the kind of guy that, that leads by example. He sees a problem. He jumps on the problem. He realized they're in danger, and so he proclaims the fast. They needed to recognize who they were. They needed to take action by humbling themselves. 
Fasting is an act of humility. Look back in verse 21. He proclaimed a fast. Why? So that they may humble themselves before God. We, we know this term, humble. To, to bow down or to become low. Uh, one commentator described it as this. Being humble before God shows one's spiritual dependence and his acknowledgement that God is in control. That God is in control, not us. You know, despite what popular culture suggests about you and I, this world does not revolve around you and me. It doesn't revolve around, we are not the center of the universe. However, everything we see in our culture and in the media will tell us otherwise. I mean, all you got to do is flip on the TV and see the advertisements, and they're meant to make us think this way, right? You deserve that new car. You, 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 you deserve the, that you are entitled to a break. You, you need this new technology. I mean, the center of the universe has been misplaced, and it's misplaced on you and me. As a believer, we're not just to acknowledge the fact that God is in control, but we are to prove it and prove that we believe it through our actions. Some of you may say, whoa, I know I'm humble. I'm good. I got that taken care of. You, you realize how much I do? Realize how much I give up? Listen to this. Luke verse, uh, chapter 18, verses 11. It's kind of comical, but it's sad at the same time. It says, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector beside me. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes to, uh, for all that I get. It's not humility. That's false humility wrapped up in an arrogant display. It's not humility. But what we see at the end of this passage, it says the tax collector who he was pointing to and degrading was standing some distance away, unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me because I am a sinner. He's being humble. He can't even bear to lift up his eyes because he sees he is a sinner. I said it, sin. It's out there. It's an unpopular word, isn't it? I mean, in, not just in our culture, but in a lot of our churches across our country, sin is something that if people are told that they're sinners, that's become offensive. But here's what we find, is there's no way around it. You look in the Word, there is no way around it. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners, that we are all unable to save ourselves, that we are all, if not for the grace of God, on a fast track to bring eternity away from Him in a very real place the Bible calls hell. But the Bible also gives the good news, right? It gives the good news about Jesus Christ and the fact that He died for our sin. He took our punishment. He defeated sin and defeated death. And because of what He has done, not us, because of what He has done, we can have eternal life through him. And yet with all of that, with all that God has done for you and I, we have the audacity to be prideful and arrogant about who we are, even though we have no power to change our eternity and could not save ourselves if it weren't for the grace of God. We need to humble ourselves to come before him. If Ezra was arrogant and prideful, the way things would have went next is, would have been totally different. He would have said, okay, forget the Levites. Don't need them. I can do it on my own. I, I don't need any help. We'll go. We'll be fine. However, that's not how Ezra acted. He acted in humility, and it was something that he recognized he needed to do. This is an important part. He recognized he needed to be humble, which is good because if we are unwilling to humble ourselves, there is a chance that God will help us with it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. 
It says, remember how the Lord, your God, he's talking to the people of Israel wandering around the desert, led you all the way in the wilderness for these 40 years. Why did he do it? To humble and to test you. Verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding with you uh, just manna. The chance that God may step in. But Ezra humbled himself because he recognized it. And he led his people to do the same exact thing. They recognized, look, we're about to go on a journey. There's no possible way we can make this journey on our own. I hope that we start coming to that realization here this morning, that we are all on this journey of, of life and, and we're going through it and we realize there's just no possible way that we can make it on our own. So they humbled themselves and the text says back in verse 21 that all that they could do was seek him. See, they were seek, not just seeking God, but seeking something from God. The same word here is also translated other places to inquire. Ezra and the people needed God. They had to inquire to God. They needed him because they understood, look, God, we, we, we need you. We can't make this journey on our own. God, you are the only one who could accomplish it. You are the only answer that there truly is. Look, you, you may be at a point this morning where you're at that point where you realize, look, there is no other answer than God. I can't handle life on my own. I've tried it. I've messed it up. I screwed up every time. I've got to come to God and to ask him for help. Perhaps you're on the ropes and you realize you need to seek him. You know, there are people that would say, ah, wait a second. You're just going to God because you need something. I mean, aren't you really taking advantage of God and using him as your own personal little genie in a bottle? Here's a question, though. Are we not needy people? Do we not need God? I mean, look, if I was able to solve all of life's issues all by myself and all the issues that I come up against, I wouldn't need God. But I, I'll be honest, I desperately need Him. I am weak and I am broken, but that doesn't make me wrong for calling for Him for my needs. Look at these scriptures that back this up. 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you the proper time. And, and, and what are you supposed to do? Cast all of your anxiety on him, all your cares, all your worries. Why? Because you are in need. Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in every, everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving. What are we supposed to do? Let your requests be made known to God. And Hebrews 10 and Acts 2. We've been there. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You did that in a major time of need. Look, of course I'm going to call on God in my time of need. Of course Ezra is going to call on God. And look, he is about to go on a journey with a bunch of people that don't know how to defend themselves, with a million dollars cash in his back pocket, and no protection. What would we have Ezra do? He could do this. This is actually a good idea. He could ask the king. It's the king's idea in the first place. The king sent him in the first place. Surely the king would want to protect his investments. It's a great idea, but we're not giving Ezra enough credit. He's thought of it. Look at verse 22. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy of the way, because we had already said, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. This really is the theology of the book of Ezra. Look, Ezra is a smart guy, right? 
he thought about it. However, he had already stated to the king, God's going to, God's, gonna, God's got my back. He's, he's saying what we've been saying for seven chapters now is that our God is greater. Our God can handle this. One commentator summarizes it this way. He says, in Israel's history, the people were exiled precisely because they relied on foreign powers. Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon in this case, instead of the Lord. God's wrath was against Israel because they forsook him for the gods of those nations. Because to get help from these nations, Israel's kings poured out libations to the God of those nations. That's what entering into a covenant with these peoples entailed. On the other hand, Moses says in Deuteronomy that from exile, Israel would seek the Lord, that's what they're doing now, and will find him when they search for him with all of their hearts. That's what they're doing. Now here they are. They're in exile, committing themselves to seeking God. And he says, I'm convinced that Ezra is doing this because he knows what Deuteronomy 4 says. Ezra is living out what Moses prophesied. Look, Ezra knew God's words. He knew him. And, 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 and he, he not only knew him, he believed him. Look, it didn't make sense to other people. Probably doesn't make sense to us. Why wouldn't you take help if it's there, right? I mean, it's not about taking the help. Don't get that wrong, because if, if, if you know your history and you know anything about Nehemiah, Nehemiah was kind of in the same position, and Nehemiah got help, and he got escorted. So what makes this difference is it, it, it's not about not taking help. It's about asking for it because you don't believe God can deliver you. Ezra had already said to the king, God's got it. I got it in control. And now he's going to worry and go, I, I, I know what I said. <clears throat> I got millions of dollars. You're going to need to help me out. He didn't do that. He believed what he said. He claimed the promises of God. So should we shy away from claiming the promises of God? Should we, should we not b- believe and trust in who he is? Uh, of course not. This was time for Ezra to prove if he believed it or not. And what we find out is he did. He sought God because he believed that God would protect him. The question is, do we have the faith to move forward despite the clear, obvious, dangerous obstacles in our life? You know, we speak our faith, but do we believe what we're saying? The proof comes when it's proved by action. It's required by action. J. Vernon McGee says this, sometimes some of us become very eloquent about how we are trusting God. And how wonderful our God is. But when we get right down to the nitty-gritty, we don't really trust Him. Do we, do we trust God? Do we trust Him enough to seek Him, to inquire of Him because we are in a time of need, and to come to Him in our greatest time? And, and, and if we seek Him, do we trust Him enough to act on what He says? Even in the midst of these very clear obstacles that are nothing to our God. Ezra believed it. He said it. And he proved it by his actions. You look back into verse 23. He says, I inquired of God. And verse 23, he answered my prayer. New American Standard says he listened. NIB says he answered. Either way, God was on board. And notice this happened before they actually left for the trip. All this was happening before. So, so God says, you're going to seek me. You're going to humble me. Humble yourself. And I'm going to answer your prayer. But then you've got to prove it. You've got to actually go out finish the journey. He said, okay, we can do that. So they got ready, they counted out all the money, and they set out on their journey. Verses 31 through 36, we find out that 
they made it, which we already knew because of chapter 7. They made it on their journey. Despite any obstacles that were threatening them, the treasure made it safely. They counted that back out again, and, and it turned out the same exact count was there, and, and they were able to put it in the treasury of God, and they worshiped God. The mission was complete. The mission that the king had for Ezra and the mission that God had for him was complete. But here's something that was kind of frustrating to me. Just reading this, it was a little bit frustrating. See, all the way up until chapter 7, we're, we're, we're hearing things written from the, the third person. And, and in chapter 7 to chapter 8, we see Ezra steps in and he's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the story now. And so he's the first person telling the story. And for me, it becomes a little bit frustrating because um, Ezra just reports the facts. It would have been cool if you could read it as like a, a journal or a diary, right? But Ezra doesn't embellish it. Sometimes I think it would have been nice to, to hear uh, about the, the emotions, right? To see how shocked Ezra would be at some of the things that happened. To see how upset Ezra would have been at the sin that they kept falling into. To see the anxiousness of him before he left on his journey with no military help. But perhaps the reason it's not like that is so that we will focus solely on God. And his greatness. And his provision for his people. Perhaps if we saw more emotion, we'd be like, oh, man, poor Ezra is left alone. I mean, his own Levites aren't even following him. And then he's, oh, my goodness, he's got millions of dollars, and he's got a, wow, this is horrible. Poor Ezra, poor people. See, the, the, the point of the account was not Ezra. It was not the king. The point of the account was God. They made it safely on their journey because of God. That's the historical account. It's that God's name was made to be great. Not Ezra, not the Levites, not the king. The account was for God's glory. And that's exactly what happened. They worshiped God and they knew it was just for him. The reason that they made it. This really is a great portion of history here. It's, it's, it's very applicable. And, 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 and not just throughout all the year, but especially here now. We're, we're still at kind of at the beginning of a new year. Hard to believe we're already halfway through uh, January. Probably even maybe, maybe two-thirds through January. But I still believe that you have a chance to make a goal. Before you get out of January, I think you're good. I think you can still make a goal. I want to challenge us. I want to challenge myself that we can make a goal. And that goal is, how am I going to allow God to be great in my life this year? You know, much like our New Year's resolutions, we're going to fail in that goal. You are. We will fail over and over again. I am going to fail over and over again. And, and you may think you fail worse than somebody else, but let me tell you this, failure is failure. And we need to recognize who we are. Recognize that we need God, not the other way around. That he has called you to be his child. And what that means is that now you are a part of the family of God, and each member, each member of the family of God is vital. Each one needs to recognize their part and actively, humbly serve him and seek him. But you may say, look, dude, I hear you, but I, I have failed. You don't know how I failed. Look, I have failed as well in ways that would make me embarrassed to tell the whole story. We've all failed. We all mess up. But here's what I've found and what you've found throughout your life is that our God is a God of second chances. And not just second chances. If you're like me, it's seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths and sixths and sevenths and eighths and ninths. And God's like, oh, yeah, second chances, third, fourth. I mean, why? and how do we know this? We know it because we've experienced it in our own lives. But we also know it because we see it here in our account today. I love how Scripture comes together. Remember, when the Levites were called, they didn't come. 
until Ezra had to send for them. Finally they came, and there were two men that were pointed out. Sherevia and Hashvia in verses 18 and 19. Why them? Why were their names out here? And I'm probably butchering them, but why were their names out here? We also see them in verse 24 and 25, and we see that they were singled out to be given all the gold and all the silver to watch it, to keep it, to deliver it. They were responsible for millions of dollars. Look at these two men. Look at the honor that is now given to them and the trust that is now put in their hands. That, that is, that's huge. Why? Because when the original names were on that list, they were nowhere to be found. They were nowhere to be found because they didn't want to go. They ignored the call, and they wanted nothing to do with it. And now look what they would have missed out on if they'd stayed back in exile. Look at the honor that they would have missed out on. See, following God will get you out of your comfort zone and out of your place of complacency. Not only do we see Saravia in this book, but we also see him in Nehemiah. Chapter 8, verse 7. We see his name, and what was he doing? He was continuing to be faithful. What was he doing? He was explaining the law to the people. He was one of the active Levites who were teaching and explaining the word. Talk about a complete 180. I mean, a man who wanted nothing to do with who he was and what he was called to do, now sharing the word with others who may be in the very same exact spot. He went from ignoring the call to living it out, from a follower to a leader. Look, that is what God can do. It doesn't matter where you've been or even where you are now. It's irrelevant what you've done in the past. What matters is where you're going to be moving forward and what you're going to be doing now because our God can make all things new. Will you make it your goal to allow God to be great in your life? Look, coming in for a close here. Who you are now is not who you have to be. Who you are now is not who you have to be in, in, in the future, uh, today, this week, this year. Look, you may have missed out on opportunities in the past. You may have ignored God's calling in your life in the past. Even now, you may be sitting there and resisting what God is trying to do in your life. Look, it doesn't have to be that way. I remember just a, a number of years ago, I was going through a real hard time in our family's life going through a transition in life and I was angry and I was hurt, I was sad disappointed, all these different things at the same exact time my youngest daughter Lily is fighting for her life inside this little box there were a lot of things happening, I was angry and I was talking to my dad about the situation that we were in, my parents came down from Maine and we're sitting there and my anger came out, we were talking about a specific person and I said, no dad he's not going to change this is who he's going to be, always he doesn't change I was wrong, and I got corrected very quickly by my father. People can change. Their hearts can change. You can change. You can go from a place of aimlessness to a place of purpose. You can set a goal today to say, no longer am I going to ignore the call that God has on my life. I'm going to realize who I am in the family of God, that I have a place, that I have a job, that I am important by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look, maybe God is calling you to get involved in a specific ministry. Get involved. Perhaps God is calling you to befriend or disciple that person that God keeps bringing to your mind over and over and over and over again. Do it. 
Maybe he's making it clear to you that he wants you to give more of yourself and your time and your resources. Well, commit to it and not just commit to it, but follow through with it. God may be impressing on your heart today, or maybe he has been for some time, that he wants something totally different out of you. Maybe he wants you to, to make a move, a job change, a career change. I don't know what that is. You just, just follow him. But I, I'll be honest with you. This isn't in anything I was prepared to say today. But as I was driving here this morning, I thought to myself, look, I'm, I'm, ch- I'm being challenged with all these big things, these grandiose things. I'm going to challenge the people of God to, to do these big things, but it doesn't always have to be these great things. We can change. We can be better. We can make goals because I know in my heart that I can be a better father at home, a much better father. I know I can be a much better husband. Maybe that is the goal that you make. It starts at home. It starts in your own life. Look, commit today that you're going to humble yourself. Realize that God's plans, are, they're not our own. We can't make it on our own. Cry out to him for his leading and his guiding so that he will get the glory in your life. That's it. That's the goal. Just to summarize it real quick, it's right up here on the screen. The goal in life for a believer is not how great our life can be, but how great God can be in and through our life. That process is most productive when we recognize who we are. Take action by humbling ourselves and seeking Him. I don't know about you, but that is a goal worth making. That is a goal worth following through on. Would you pray with me? Our God, what a challenge you've put forward before us. Or it's not one specific thing, Lord. It's not like we can go and say, you know, I know that, that God wants me to sell my house or quit my job or whatever it may be, Lord. Lord, it's what all of us need to do. And that is to recognize where we fit into the big scheme of things, Lord, that in and of ourselves, we, we are nothing. But Lord, through you, we are new creatures, Lord. We are important to the, the family of God. Each one of us has our own things that we need to be doing, Lord. Lord, impress it upon our lives to, to humble ourselves before you, to come before you in our times of need, Lord, to, to, to request of you help through this dangerous journey of life. Help us to be able to commit and to follow you, Father. We are grateful for who you are. We're grateful for how you provide. We're grateful for your love. We're grateful for the sound equipment that we have beside us that sometimes messes up, God. We aren't in control. It doesn't matter. You are in control, and we want to be careful to give you all praise and all glory for all things. Through your son's precious name we ask.